0: Today's scripture reading will be from Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. It's Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Good morning wonderful to see you we have a number of visitors thank you for coming and being with us today i'm excited about this opportunity to stand here and to preach god's word but i'm going to tell you that the things that we'll talk about this morning have uh, have weighed on me for a while and i've been trying to figure out uh, this week how exactly might i share and so i'm going to do the best that i can let's open our bible to the book of galatians chapter five galatians chapter five and the reason I shared that little insight into my mind and heart is because I just really appreciated Wally, your prayer. It, it touched me, and uh, I, really, I really appreciated that. Thank you so much. Galatians chapter 5, let's do this. Let's do three things this morning as we study together. First of all, let's have uh, an explanation from the text. Second of all, let's have a reflection from this text. And then third of all, let's have some application as a result of our spending some time in this text together. So look at Galatians chapter 5. We're going to begin our reading there in about verse 12, but before we do that, I just want to give you a little bit of background. So Galatians, wonderful book of Paul, um, excellent passage as he talks about freedom, freedom in Christ. And he defends his apostleship, you recall, in in Galatians chapter 1. And then he goes through the process of being apologetic. Now, I don't mean that in the sense that he is apologizing for the gospel or for the truth, but he is being apologetic or he's being defensive, if you will, of the gospel message. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic accounts of the gospel of Christ in contrast with uh, John which is sort of an outlier if you will Matthew Mark and Luke are synoptic in that they're similar but they are defenses Apologia is the word but they are defenses of the gospel of Jesus and the Apostle Paul is defending uh, freedom in Christ in Galatians chapter 4, in verses 21 through the end, we have a, 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 a separation that's given. Two examples separating the old law and the new law. The old law being the law of Moses, the new law being the law of Christ. And he says that the old law is kind of like uh, uh, Hagar. Hagar, the handmaid of Abraham, from whom a child was born to Abram. And then, of course, the new law was represented in Sarah, Abraham's wife, and uh, from Sarah they would have Isaac, the the only begotten, if you will, the the son, the child of promise. And he says that under the uh, under Hagar, this this child that was born, this represents the old law, but under Isaac, it represents the new law because it points to freedom that we would have in Christ. And then with that thought in mind, you drop down to Galatians chapter 5, and it is all about having a life that's free. A life that's free. And that was special to God's people under this, especially the beginning part of the Christian age, because they had, had experienced bondage. They knew something about bondage. There, of course, was the bondage that we read about in the book of Exodus when God's people... Uh, were being presented with an opportunity to leave Egyptian captivity or Egyptian bondage and make their way into the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And uh, so they knew something about bondage, and they knew something about the excitement of freedom. But even though there was freedom as God's people, Israel, going into this promised land, it still wasn't the kind of freedom that God was going to offer his people through the Christ. And so when you come to chapter 5, I said we'd start in verse 12. I'm going to renege on that. We're going to back up just a little bit. If you look in verse number 2, it says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you Nothing, Of course, circumcision was a part of the Old Covenant. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is debtor to do the whole law. If you are putting all this weight on this one aspect of the law, you are not going to experience wholeness unless you do all of the law. But even if you can do all of the law, you're still not going to have and enjoy freedom. And so, uh, don't put all your eggs in that basket. Christ has become of no effect of you. Whosoever you have justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ... Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision availeth anything, but faith which worketh by love. What you and I enjoy as Christians comes to us by two components. It comes to us by the grace of God. That is everything that God can possibly do to throw the possibility of salvation to us. But then the other component is our faith. And that is everything that you and I can throw at salvation in order to experience that great blessing. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, or his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Good works, that's not something that we do to earn salvation. But that's something that we do because salvation has been extended to us by the grace of God. And then our response is that obedient faith. That's why we talk about things like we've got to hear God's Word. We've got to believe it with all our heart. We've got to repent of our sins and confess our our faith in Jesus as being the Son of God. We've got to be immersed in water for the remission of our sins. And it's not because we want to follow a a nice and neat five-step approach to salvation. No, that's not what it's about. But it's about grace, God's grace, extending to us Jesus, and then us responding in faith, doing whatever it is that God says we must do in order to experience salvation. Sometimes I'll tell folks that if God said in order to be saved, in order to accept that grace, identify that grace in our lives, to do that, you've got to jump through a brick wall then we better start jumping through some brick walls and just hope that God is going to open up that brick wall so it doesn't hurt too much. But God didn't tell us to do that. God told us to do some other things in order to be saved. But it's by God's grace that we have that opportunity. And then he says in verse number 6, in Christ, or verse 7, You did run well, these new Jewish Christians, you do do run well, but who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? You know, there's some things that hinder us from, from completely and totally giving up and giving in and giving over to God. Sometimes it's a spouse, sometimes it's a job, Sometimes it's uh, a hobby, sometimes it is uh, the world, but there are things that hinder us. Is there something hindering you right now from following God? Is there something that's hindering you right now in this moment from experiencing absolute and total freedom that comes by living a life for Christ? Think about it. And if so, would you give it up? Would you walk away from it? so that you can know freedom in Jesus? All right, verse 12. I would, they were even cut off which trouble you. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now back up just a little bit there. All of the law, all of the law is fulfilled in one word. What is that word? He doesn't tell us what the word is. In fact, what he does is he says uh, all of the law is fulfilled in one word and then he commences to giving us an entire phrase. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The word is love, of course. We know that. But it is the demonstration of that love that's important. It is something that we do with faith for our neighbor we reflect on our theme for a moment join us for a on a journey of loving God loving us loving you loving God makes sense to us right and and that loving of God is um, is evidenced by our action for instance uh, Jesus said if you love me keep my commandments It's not enough just to say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. Anybody can say I love Jesus, but it is what do we do for Jesus that exhibits that love. And so loving God cannot stand alone. You have to have those other two components. That's why they're so important. So we love God by loving us. And if you're visiting with us, what that means is we look inwardly. Look within the walls of this, this building, or maybe outside of the walls of this building into, into the hearts of those who are members here but are not here for some reason. This is brethren, loving us, loving one another. As was mentioned from Psalm 133 in verse 1, it's good and pleasant for us to love one another. But then the third one is loving you. That's actually when we get outside of the walls of this building and when we love people that are, that are outside of Christ, that are outside of his, his kingdom, of his body. And so we love God by, yes, loving one another, but beyond that, loving our neighbor as ourself. I find it interesting here that the Apostle Paul says that the law is fulfilled in, the, in a word, even this, Love thy neighbor as thyself. But that's not the great command that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 22. If you were here Wednesday night, we heard a good lesson from uh, our guest speaker, from Tommy, on Matthew chapter 22. And just by way of review, if you were here uh, and if you were not, we'll just... uh, quickly go over that look at Matthew chapter 22 Matthew chapter 22 there are 613 commands that were identified by the rabbis that make up the old covenant the torah genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy and of those 613 365 of them were negative the majority of those commands were were negative and there was a fella, a lawyer to be exact, that w- was questioning the Lord. And it was, it's as if he wanted to catch the Lord in a, in a problematic position. Of course, the Lord did not have any problematic positions, but it's like he wanted to catch him in one. And he says, uh, I want to know, Master, he uses that term Master in verse 36. I, know, I want to know what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And if you're familiar with Mark's account, he adds the word strength to it. Now that's what he says, right? We are to love God. That's like the great commandment. And of that expression, loving God with all of our hearts, soul, mind, Mark says strength, we can create an entire sermon about what does it mean to love God with those components, with the heart and the soul and the mind and strength. What does that look like? And it's it's like we make those words the thrust of what Jesus is saying, but I would suggest that's not the thrust of what Jesus is saying. In fact, the primary word that we need to focus on, uh, Jesus' word here in verse number 37, is not one of these, but it is a word that is repeated three times. A-L-L. All. Now what does that mean? It means that from our heart, from our soul, from our mind, from our strength, we love God with everything that makes us, us. Oh, that's the thrust of what he's saying. But isn't it interesting that in verse number 38 and 39, Jesus gives him more than what he asked for. He said, Master, I almost sense a bit of an of. of Arrogance there in that tone Contextually anyway Master What's the great command? Love God But I'm going to give you the second Because it's like it Love your neighbor As yourself Why are those two so important? Because all 611 Other commands depend on these two. Love God and love one another. Now we go back to Galatians chapter 5. Paul was not out of sorts here. Paul was not taking Scripture out of its context. Paul had had not gone uh, rogue or not become the maverick, if you will, to borrow a movie term. But what Paul is doing here is he's placing an emphasis on the fact that you cannot love God without loving your neighbor. Well, who's your neighbor? It's everybody. It's those that you agree with and those that you don't agree with. It's those that you find their, their, their thoughts and their ideals pleasant and encouraging, and they are those whose ideals you find repugnant. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's transition just a bit from the explanation here to a reflection. There's still some explanation to be had, but I want us to... Have a bit of a reflection here on on what's going on. In verse 15, apparently there was a problem with brethren. And the problem was they were biting and devouring one another, and in essence, being like lions and consuming one another the expression bite and devour is not used very often in scripture it's 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 this idea just as it describes it's this idea of of chomping down on one another with their teeth of sav- savagery of of ripping the flesh off of one another and, and that of course is being used to paint a very vivid picture it doesn't seem to be that Christians were actually being cannibals, but in their hearts, it's like they were being cannibals and they were eating one another up from an attitude standpoint. And so that was the problem. Instead of having a love for one another, it's like this. It's like they had become Christians. They had experienced some freedom and they were saying, we're free people. And because of our freedom, we have our rights. And we know something about that as, as Americans, don't we? We don't like being told what to do and what not to do. Because we're Americans, and, and we're free, and we have liberty, and we do. Praise God. But we're Christians first. And we have a responsibility from our heart to have and behave like Jesus Would require. It's interesting here that within this context uh, of, of liberty, he's talking to people that understood something about slavery. And it's also interesting that when you read through the scripture, it does not appear that. God utilized his spokespeople, his inspired spokespeople, to stand up and say, okay, let's put an end to slavery. Now, I'm not suggesting that slavery is something that we should rejoice about. Please don't think I would ever say that. But the point here is powerful. When you're living in a situation that is, we would call, repulsive, Repugnant, even shameful, hurtful, when we're living in a, an environment or a situation like that, it does not mean that we should not behave and respond from a Christian standpoint, as Paul, especially would write to to situations and environments where folks had become Christians, but they're living in a form of slavery, you'll notice what Paul does. He says, okay, masters as Christians. Okay, servants, sometimes referred to as slaves, as Christians. You treat one another the way that Jesus would want you or you would want to be treated. In fact, let's look in uh, the book of Philemon for just a second. Here we have a, a case in which Onesimus was a slave. He runs away from his environment. He runs away from Philemon. And, of course, he runs into the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul clearly teaches him the gospel, and he obeys that gospel. But part of that obedience to the gospel requires him to repent. Well, he ran away from a position in which he should have remained and so it's as if he was committing thievery and running away from that enslaved position. And so Paul said, you've got to go back. You've got to make amends. You've got to repent as part of your salvation process. And so he does. He's willing to do that. He, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like the idea of going back to bonds, if you will. But he understands that now he's, he's not just in bonds in slavery he he's in bonds to christ and he has a greater responsibility and commitment to the christ and so he's going to go back and he's going to make things right with his with his owner and paul gives him a letter and he approaches Onesimus approaches philemon and in verse 12 it says uh, verse 13 whom i have i would have retained with me he's talking about or let me back at verse 10 He said, I beseech you, therefore, for Onesimus, who I have begotten in my bonds. In other words, he's now as if one of my spiritual children. He's taught in the gospel. Which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now is profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels whom I would have retained with me that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of thy gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing that they benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldst receive him forever. Now notice verse 16. But now not as a servant, but above that, a brother beloved, especially to me, But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord? He's not telling him to end the arrangement. He's not telling him to end the slavery. What he's telling them both is to change the dynamics from the heart. And that's what being a Christian does. The old law did not prep the heart the way the law of Christ preps the heart. And the law of Christ preps us to live within environments and treat one another the way that Jesus would want us to. That's a reflection. Let's make an application. This past week, Roe v. Wade. Wow. Wow. Perhaps some of us are thinking this never would have happened in our lifetime. Maybe there's a a sense in in which we've had uh, not enough faith. God's eyes are over the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers and we have been praying for this day for a long time, haven't we? And yet it's almost as if it's like an athletic competition and you get on social media or you you watch the news and you listen to the pundits and it's like it's the it's the home team versus the away team and and it's like a sporting event and there's there's taunting and there's there's hatefulness I don't misunderstand I'm not suggesting that there should not be excitement and and we should not be pleased but it's like I saw when I got on social media this morning somebody had, had posted something similar to this and I thought this is right it's not that it's not that we have received freedom back but it's that God's command has been identified again. It's not a competition. It's not. A friend of mine posted something. I'm, this may be the first time I've jumped on Facebook. Give me just a second. Not the first time I've jumped on Facebook, but from the pulpit, clearly. Uh, He wrote this a day or two ago. Laughing emojis. Did I say that right? I always wonder if I say that right. I've been made fun of for not saying it right. Laughing emojis twice in a row. Damning comments. Really? An appeal to be long sold. Listen to this. In response to the celebratory post by those who are pleased with today's SCOTUS ruling, are hundreds of comments by those who disagree, who vehemently disagree. Their comments may be reprehensible to you. Their language may be vile. Their ideas and beliefs, equally vile. But tagging their posts with a laughing emoji doesn't help matters. Nor does immediately or near immediately condemning souls for believing something contrary to what you believe. That's probably not the best way to reach and teach souls about our holy God and His holy will. First point. Some of our responses do not come across well. They come across as insensitive, as overly confrontational, as heartless and uncaring. And yes, That's how we might perceive how those on the other side come across to us. Second point, if this fellow, speaking of himself as the writer, if this fellow Christian sees that, you can rest assured that those who have no patience with or interest in religion see it as well. Third point, love demands that we express patience for souls. Even those who seemingly have no interest in what we believe, Patience does not mean compromise, nor does love mean overlooking or refusing to discuss these matters rationally and kindly, even vigorously. My take, this is the writer, it means that we must be, quote, long-souled. We usually refer to that concept as long-suffering or patient. Long-souled conveys the idea of stretching, not stretching truth or circumstances, but Stretching self, allowing ourselves to flex and bend, again, not on truth or principles, but in how we respond. Long-souled reflects an attitude, a disposition that makes me endure offenses of all kinds and makes me endure them with patience and kindness and a continual willingness to teach the truth in the right way. Does this mean that we can never correct what we think are ungodly beliefs and actions? No. It does mean, however, that we might be just a bit more judicious in how we present ourselves when we discuss today's issues. And today's issue will be with us for a long time. And I think the writer, Jody Apple, was spot on. I think it was very wise. For us not to treat this moment in time like an athletic competition. Us versus them. But to treat it for what it is. God's command has been seen once again. Whether intentionally or unintentionally by the courts, it has been identified And we now have a tremendous opportunity from an application standpoint to demonstrate for the world what the love of God looks like. So what do we do now? We teach the truth, of course. Psalm 139, the psalmist very plainly lays out for us in Scripture, as David is doing the writing there, that God knew me from the deepest parts of the earth. And contextually, he's talking about when I was in my embryonic state, when I was in my mother's womb. God saw me there. We teach Proverbs chapter 6 that there are things that God hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him, A proud look, pride, which is the reason for all other sins, by the way. A proud look and hands that shed innocent blood. We teach the truth without question and without apology. But we better teach the truth from the standpoint that says, I love you. And there's no question in somebody's mind as to whether or not we love them. Whether we agree or disagree, they got to know we love them. I want to close with two passages. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. What is grace? Grace is giving something to somebody that they don't deserve. Maybe the way people are acting... Maybe the way people are talking to us. Maybe in our minds what they deserve is a response in kind. And I mean the wrong kind. But that's not grace. Grace is when we see them as having an eternal soul that can be won or lost for all of eternity and I'm not going to say anything to them in a way that's going to possibly keep them from wanting to know Jesus. Now the truth, the truth may cut them. And they may decide they want nothing to do with Jesus. But let the truth do that. Not the way that you share the truth with them. Let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. My wife can't understand why I don't, just pour the salt on my food I, 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 I just I, I just don't do that if somebody puts salt on it and it goes on my plate I, I eat it but you will rarely ever see me put salt on something that has been put in front of me even my eggs I I make my eggs I put no salt on them when I make fixing the eggs I put no salt on the eggs when they go on my plate that's just me and that's okay But when it comes time to the way that I communicate, I need to do so with salt so that my words are more palatable. They're easier to digest. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Now look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, sound speech, true speech we can say without changing the tenor of the verse, sound speech, true speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And so when we marry those passages together, we are speaking the truth. And there can be no question because we are sharing not our opinion, but we are sharing the Scripture. We're sharing the truth of God's Word. There can be no question as to whether or not we are sharing the truth. And the way that we do that has no negative impact on whether or not they accept it. Let God take care of that. And God promises that His word will not be returned to Him void. Galatians chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. A very powerful passage. The liberty that we have in Christ does not mean that we are free. To behave any way that we want to even if we have the truth on our side we have to behave in the right way and when we love God we're going to love others, all others we're going to behave in the right way so that God is glorified remember at the end of the day this is all about souls and there is not a single Person who's protesting on the side opposite of Scripture whom God does not want to see in heaven. God wants every soul saved. And we've got to do our part. And we've got to demonstrate that love. It begins with the way that we present ourselves. But by the way, It also includes, it includes how we treat those who have found themselves in positions that perhaps they did not plan for. Those who engaged in a sexual relationship outside of wedlock, and they they are now finding themselves pregnant with child, and what, what, what now? And there's perhaps shame that that is now embedded in in that heart. And what will we do as Christians? Will we press on that? Or will we let them know, look, look, who am I? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And we all need Jesus. And Jesus loves you. He doesn't love you any less. Can I walk with you through these difficult days? Can I show my love for you, the love that Jesus has for you? Can I help you through this process? I can't have a child. I can't raise a child perhaps more Christians will stand up and say, adoption, I'll take care of this. Or maybe we can't do that, but we can find someone or we can find some way to help them through that process to make it easier. But we can let them know that despite what you've done, God loves you and we love you. What are we going to do? To show our love for God. I, I'm not up here preaching to anyone, so I, I have not, am not saying that I've identified anyone in this room as uh, being hateful in their comments about this decision. It's not because it hasn't happened, I just haven't seen it. But if your heart has not been as it should be about this matter, maybe other matters. Let God's Word prick that heart. Let it change that heart. Love God by loving others. If you find yourself in a situation today where you realize, I'm guilty of sin and I I want to be forgiven. Let us pray with and for you. That would be our honor today. If if you understand that you're not a Christian and you need to come to God in penitent faith and be baptized because baptism puts you into Christ, Galatians 3, baptism washes all the sins of the past away, Acts 2 and verse 38, and you know that and you're ready to be baptized today, (laughs) the water's here. We can take care of that. Maybe you just want to request that we pray for you or for family or friends or some situation going on in your life, we'd be happy and honored to do that as well. Whatever the need is, make this morning's invitation yours as together we stand and as we sing.